0: And uh, here's the uh, list of announcements. I'm trying to get through them quickly Uh, and you see there's six of them. So I just made it simple. Glad, dad, good, sad, happy, bad. I know I shouldn't end on a bad note but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, So here are the announcements. Glad. Uh, July 1st, Hoop Fest. We are glad because we're going to be downtown uh, spending time on mission interacting with people. There will not be a service in this building on July 1st. So with Hoop Fest as well as with Bloomsday when they kind of uh, section off the city, we uh, go with them and engage in the city. So uh, have a barbecue, invite friends over, spend time cheering on uh, little kids in your local elementary school or people in this community that you know. I know Brooke is gathering a list of teams. If you have a team name, And uh, you are playing and you give us that information. We will put a schedule together and make sure that everyone in the community has access to it so that you can go and cheer on people here that play basketball. So that's glad. Dad, next week, not only is Father's Day, but it is the first Sunday we will be at 9 a.m. So if you come at 10, you'll, I mean, for some of you, then you'd be early. Just kidding. Um... (laughs) But for some of you, you'd be like, oh, shoot, I missed the music. But um, we will be starting at 9 a.m. this next week, and we'll do that throughout the summer, okay? So 9 a.m. next week, that's the dad announcement. Good. Last week, this was sad, but now it's good. So last week, we announced that Dave is retiring, and we were sad, and we still are, but it's also good because we're celebrating the fact that he's, uh, he and Lee are moving into retirement. And so um, we, we want to do, Dave and Lee, would you come down? And then we can uh, spend a moment uh, praying over you guys. Uh, Kevin mentioned this last week, but Dave is transitioning. She's coming, Dave. Um, Dave is transitioning into retirement. He transitioned right out of Spokane Schools and doing that for 40-some years into uh, this. In his retirement, he joined staff, and it has been everything but retirement for him, uh, and it is why we're in this building, and uh, he has been so sacrificial, and generous with his time and effort, uh, an incredibly hard worker, a great leader, uh, full of wisdom. I could go on and on and on. Um, but it's been so good to be on staff with him over the last couple years. And um, it has gone fast. And now they're transitioning into a new phase which we're really excited about. And uh, eager for them to spend more time golfing, with the grandkids, all that kind of stuff. So, um, what we want to do is uh, just pray over them but also uh, to give them a little gift for a night out on a date. Yeah, that's right, a date. Um, but we we love you guys. You guys know that, and we're so thankful for not only your commitment to being on staff, but to this community, um, and just the way that you love people here is pretty amazing. So let me pray over these two. God, we are so thankful for Dave and Leah. We're thankful for their love for you, first and foremost. The fact that they passionately follow you, that they're uh, invested uh, in people, that they learn from you and your word, that they listen to your voice and that they follow. And you have led them to serve in this community in really unique ways over the last two years. And now, as they listen to your voice, you're leading them into a new phase. We celebrate that, we're excited about that, uh, we're eager to see them continue to uh, display the kingdom and to lean into the values that they uh, always lean into. May you continue to use them, may they be uh, a steady force in our community, in their small group, in their family, in them. amen. So that was the good, now we're on to the sad. Uh, So this is a combination of good and sad. Um, So many of you know Carly. Carly uh, last year was uh, working not only at New Community, but also working at Spokane Public Schools, where she uh, was for part of the year uh, in a role in her kids' uh, elementary school, serving in uh, part-time capacity. She applied for that job, but for the full year, and uh, just this last week, she got it. And uh, we are excited about that part, but the sad part comes with uh, the decision to then say, in light of doing that for the full year, in light of having four kids, in light of having foster kids, in light of her husband being in uh, full-time grad school, that it would probably be in <coughs> excuse me, uh, their best interest to uh, have her not work here that's the sad part Um, we're telling you now because uh, her plan is to transition near the end of the summer um, and we will spend some time then uh, just kind of celebrating her and her investment here in this community in that capacity Um, so we are very sad to lose her influence on staff and her impact on the kids and kids ministry Uh, she has been incredibly faithful has loved our kids well And uh, we will uh, definitely, definitely miss that. Um, But we will celebrate her a little bit later this summer and uh, thank her for the time and investment she's given to the new community. In the meantime, you guys could be praying for us as we uh, look to fill several roles on staff uh, that we would be wise and discerning. That God would lead uh, exactly the right people that we need to continue to love this community well. So that's the sad news. On to the happy news. Uh, We've been talking about staffing a little bit um, because of retirement or transitions, Uh, but we have been praying for uh, quite a while now and over the last probably year been spending significant time not only praying but dreaming about adding a youth pastor to staff. Uh, To give you a quick little snapshot of the history, New Community had a full-time youth pastor and the last time we had a full-time youth pastor was 10 years ago. Uh, So we, at that point, uh, that person stepped off staff. We filled it in a part-time capacity for a couple years. But in between that time of the full-time youth pastor and this fall when we hope to have a full-time youth pastor, in between there were a few things that kind of uh, conspired against the idea of us adding someone to staff, namely the startup of two nonprofits and planting three churches. So in that space... Um, It was never our intention to go without a youth pastor for a long time, but God just through circumstances and events uh, didn't enable us to be able to step into that. But it has been a growing desire for us on staff, but also I believe for the community at large. Um, We very much as a uh, community, but I can speak on behalf of the staff and elders, desire to disciple this community really well but from the time you're a newborn through the time um, at the end of life that we want all of life to be uh, the kind of um, impact in terms of discipleship that we can, we can offer. And this particular age group is an age group that has uh, gone lacking for a while. And as we've continued to see the need, we have felt a strong desire to, to fill that need. So we've been... Uh, As I said, praying about uh, having an intergenerational, very collaborative uh, youth ministry, partnering with other organizations and churches downtown. It'll be urban focused like our church has been. It will be small group driven like our church is. Um, All of those things that uh, kind of make new community unique will be infused into this particular youth group and um, we want obviously there'll be service and fellowship and all the things you would imagine around a typical youth group but there will be a lot of intentionality that looks a little bit different Uh, we've been working hard at this already Uh, we were able to recently uh, get a partnership with whitworth university uh, where we'll be doing collaborative work with them there will be we've been working already with youth ministers up there Uh, But because of their desire to partner with us and our desire to partner with them, they have uh, offered us a $10,000 gift to begin this youth ministry role again at New Community, which uh, is huge. That's an incredible, uh, incredible thing. And so they're not just saying it verbally that they want to partner, but they're actually putting action behind that. Uh, Other churches locally downtown here have expressed the desire to partner and have their youth group kids a part of this ministry as well. Um, we are, however, short of where we would desire to be. The goal is to raise uh, $45,000 for this first year. That 45000 will cover salary, will cover insurance, and will cover the budget for youth ministry for the year. And so our goal is to raise that money by mid-July. Uh, if very similar to the church pro- building process, we'll continue to come up with creative ways in which we uh, love and care for the middle school through high school ages. But our desire would be to begin this fall with that position. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A time after the service over in the chapel, just right out that way, right behind these doors. Um, and if you have questions, we would love to receive your answers or to give you answers for your questions. Um, but here, here's a couple things to think about. You might be asking yourself, well, does this meeting apply to me? I would suggest that it does. I suggest that it applies to everyone. Uh, if we just have parental involvement of the few kids that would be in this youth ministry to start, um, we will not have a youth pastor. However, if you had an incredible youth ministry experience growing up and you would like other kids both local and other kids in the area, high school and all around, to experience that same thing, I would encourage you, be there, hear more about it, and gain a passion to give toward that need. If you hated your youth group experience, and it was the worst thing you could imagine, then come, be a part of the meeting, and give resources to say, I don't want another kid to experience what I had. So regardless, if you have kids or don't have kids, the meeting is entirely for you. We would love for you to be there, and we would love to tell you more and cast more of a vision of what we're uh, looking to do here at Newcom. All right. Uh, last but not least, the bad. Uh, before we go back into worship, it's just always great to end with bad. Um, this is actually also a good and a bad, so if you looked in your bulletin this morning, and some of you may have gotten one on the way in, if not, uh, I think Brooke has some in the back, and if you raise her, uh, your hand, she would be more than happy to give you a uh, bulletin. Uh, if, uh, if you notice, in the bulletin there's a little statement about the uh, budget to date, so the elders wanted me to just take a moment and highlight where we're at on that, the first quarter of the year we uh, had a budgeted number around 80,000 I think the what we brought in was around 69 thousand or something like that uh, which means we're 13 this is the bad news 13,000 short of the budget for the first quarter the good news is we underspent our budget by nine thousand dollars which is great but the bad news is we still overspent by4, thousand dollars Does that make sense? So we budgeted, but we spent less, but we still spent more than we brought in. So we're about $4,000 short, uh, which obviously, when we're dreaming about a youth pastor, uh, makes it more challenging to do that if we're not hitting the bottom line on our general budget. So I offer the glad, the dad, the good, the sad, the happy, and the bad this morning for our announcements. And I'm going to pray for those And then we're going to enter right back into uh, worship. And if you have questions for me, feel free to catch me afterwards. And then uh, over in the youth ministry meeting, I'll be there as well.
1: Uh, First, I want to say, uh, how good did Russ do on those announcements, huh? Pretty impressive. Man, I think he should maybe do those every weekend. So we might be talking about that. Uh, However, he did forget to mention one thing. Uh, For this dream and vision towards a youth pastor, we have some commitment cards. He said the money needs to be raised uh, by mid-July. That's not totally true. The money needs to be pledged and or raised by mid-July, all right? So uh, in a moment, Brooke's going to come down here. She's going to filter out some different pledge cards that we have. Uh, This kind of gives you uh, something to maybe take home, to pray over. If you have questions, you can email uh, Brooke. Do you want it at Brooke at New Community or Bookkeeper at New Community? Brooke at New Community, you can email Brooke at New Community, ask questions there, or if you don't even want to mess around with it, uh, that little uh, sheet and you just want to send her an email saying, hey, my family and I were in for this amount, that's uh, totally acceptable as, uh, as well, all right? So uh, hearing those announcements uh, made me think of something, and uh, I haven't read a ton of church management books uh, but my guess is if I had read some of those, they would say never put that set of announcements all together on one Sunday morning. However, that seems pretty consistent with the way that New Community does stuff. Uh, but the books that I have read would certainly say that you don't follow up that set of Sunday morning announcements with a talk on money. And that is what we are doing today, my friends. This is uh, our June elephant in the elephant series, and it is the elephant of money. We've called it kingdom versus cash. Now, typically, I would write this sermon with a special sensitivity so as not to offend people. I would do this with special attention, not to paint everybody with broad strokes. And so you use kind of a softer language. You use words like might Or words like, could it be, or have you ever thought about this in this way? And this leaves a lot of room for interpretation for the listener, for the hearer. And it actually gives you the ability to maybe distance yourself a little bit from the material that is being spoken. This tactic creates kind of an interesting or maybe a thought-provoking Sunday experience, but I would argue maybe warning that will not be my tactic. I actually plan to paint with broad strokes. This is not going to be a Sunday money message that talks about maybe giving up one additional coffee a month. I intend to push a little bit, and I hope that you will be okay with that. I hope that you will give me the freedom to push in that way, because really, my intention is that you would leave here, that I would leave here, questioning what was heard and then needing to further discuss in group or with friends as we drive home and in this coming week, all right? But before we start, I need to talk about baseball cards. How many people were baseball card, or maybe I should say are, or were baseball card collectors? All right, so there were several of us. I can remember, and I'm actually not sure if it's my memory or a memory that I have created, but a, uh, a memory of getting my first pack of baseball cards, And I actually believe my mom bought me the pack of baseball cards because there was gum on the inside. They used to do that in baseball cards. They'd put a stick of gross, disgusting gum. And I saw that and thought, oh, man, I love gum. I'll get this. And I remember opening the pack and eating the gum and then realizing there was other stuff in this little package. And it was 8 to 10 kind of glossy baseball cards. Everybody's seen a baseball card, correct? Right? And on the front, there's a picture of an athlete, a baseball player in some sort of defensive position or batting or something like that. And then the back has usually stats, lifetime stats or maybe even seasonal stats. And then a a little write-up about who that player is, maybe where they played uh, before they were in the major leagues. And when I opened that pack, after I had spit out the gum when it loses its flavor after about 15 seconds, (laughs) looked at the cards, I remember becoming enamored with baseball cards. I wasn't necessarily a baseball player, but I just, they were so cool to me. And this kind of started me out on a adventure of collecting, becoming a collector. And so immediately I began to think, well, how do I get my next pack of baseball cards? And I began to scheme. What could I do? How could I use my allowance? Are there extra chores I could do around the house to get more money to begin to collect baseball cards? And soon, my allowance would go to that, and any additional money I could find or could work for would go towards baseball cards. And then on Saturdays, I would beg my parents to take me to Jack's Sport Cards on the north side of Spokane. Does anybody remember Jack's Sport Cards? I'm going to guess nobody, okay? The Rosars at the Y, directly across the street in that uh, enormous strip mall, Jack's Sports Cards was there, and this was the mecca of Cards and memorabilia, and I can remember walking into Jack's and he has these big glass cases that you would look at all these different cards, and the walls were filled with uh, different types of cards and boxes of cards and, and this was this was what I loved. I began to evaluate cards and collect them and store them, and then you would buy a Beckett. Anybody remember what a Beckett is? A couple of us a Beckett was an actual monthly publication that would come out and it would give you the values of the cards that you have so In June, this card was worth 7 cents, and in August, maybe it was worth 8 cents, and this stuff was awesome to me. It was where I gave my attention for a couple years of my life. It actually began to consume me. It was what I thought about. Now, let me tell you about baseball card collecting because a couple of things happen once you start collecting. You start with just a pack and then that goes to another pack and then soon enough you begin to maybe specialize and there's a certain type of baseball card you collect. It could be an upper deck card or a tops card or maybe Bowman cards and you either uh, like get your, uh, your focus on a certain type or maybe it's a certain year of baseball card. You love baseball cards from this era or a certain team or a certain player of cards you collect and then once you collect cards, you have to get a way to store them. And so you get a little folder with these uh, plastic sheets that can hold individual cards, and then that's easier for viewing. And then you have multiple folders, and you have to have like a shelf to put your folders. And soon enough, there's no more shelves in the house. Then you have to have bins that all of the folders go in. And then you get really expensive cards, and so you get hard cases. And hard cases keep the card even more mint, which that's a word you want to keep in here, mint, okay? Because a mint card is worth a lot more. Then you put, and then if you have a really, really expensive card, mine is a Brooks Robinson rookie card that I have somewhere. I believe it's in my parents' basement. If you have a really, really expensive card, then you get a screwed-in case. And that is a large plastic uh, bottom. Put the card in, you put the other plastic piece right here, and then you screw it in, and it's like maximal security. Nothing could happen (laughs) to that card. And so on and so forth until your life becomes consumed with the accumulation and protection of your cards. This is what I spent most of my time thinking about and pursuing. Maybe a a different way to say it would be, this is what I had given my allegiance to at this age in my life. Now, as a 7 to 10-year-old, a robust collection of cards or coins or even pogs, if you guys remember pogs, which were collectible items at one point, you can pass these things thing that this young man is doing, but the fact remains, it can be incredibly easy to lose yourself in something and then look around you and notice that you are completely consumed by this thing in your life. You didn't even know it. And then you look around and you say, Man, my life is consumed with this. It is easy to give away your allegiance to something, maybe in a way that you never intended. And I would argue that this is what has happened with money in our Christian faith. Let's open to Luke 12, specifically verses 16 through 21. Let me paint the picture a little bit because there's some stuff that happens right before 16 to 21. Jesus is teaching, and it says that there are thousands of people around Jesus, and they've all kind of pressed in around Jesus, so much so that the scripture says they're actually trampling one another in this moment just to get within earshot of what Jesus is teaching specifically to his disciples. This is not a teaching to the masses. He's got his 12 guys around him and he's teaching to them and everybody's around trying to listen in to hear what Jesus is saying. And from the crowd, a man yells out asking about the legalities of dividing a family inheritance. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And immediately when you read this, You can tell the temperament or the tone of the man by his question. You see, he's not asking Jesus for counsel as to how to navigate this tenuous relational issue that he's having with his brother in dividing the family inheritance. He's not even asking for like a sound judicial and equitable decision about inheritance. He's asking Jesus to take sides. He's saying, I have just as much right to this inheritance. Tell my brother he needs to give me What is mine? As commentator Gary Enrig rightly says about the man, like many since his time, he wants to use Jesus to meet his monetary desires. And Jesus replies, and I'm actually picking up in 14 here, Jesus replies, man. And that word man in the original language would have been uh, about the same as saying stranger. And it connotates this idea of deep, deep displeasure. So he's distancing himself and he says, man, stranger, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, meaning back to the disciples, not the crowds, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded you. Then you will get What you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, we've all heard this one before. In fact, I've actually even preached on this before uh, in in, uh, kind of the middle of of a different sermon a couple of years ago. And there are many different principles that can be drawn from this parable. Here are a couple of things that I think we have heard about this when, when studying specifically Luke 12. Number one, possessions and wealth isolate us. The scripture says he thought to himself, literally meaning he dialogued with himself. And in verses 17 through 19, he uses the word I six times. What should I do? I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will store my crops. This, my friends, is what is called self-justification, when you begin to have internal dialogue isolated from the community around you making specific decisions. You see, wealth has the nasty habit of sterilizing the world around us. It insulates us. We build bigger houses with smaller front doors behind higher fences, all protected by gates. We seek self-reliance as the highest value so that we might not actually need help from anybody else in our life. And then in our isolation, the second uh, thing we learn from this parable is that wealth skews our reality. We get an inflated sense of power and control in our lives, which leads to poor decision making. The rich fool tears down working barns to build newer, bigger barns. That doesn't make a ton of sense. You see, wealth skews our reality so that we no longer make decisions through the lens of need or prudence, but simply because we have the money, and we can. When the bumper crop comes, the wealth on top of what all we all, uh, already have, we immediately think about upgrading our life, the new furniture, the remodel, quickly fine stuff, or in our case in America we just get a storage unit and put it in there so that we can make room for our new stuff. Not out of need, but simply because we can. Which leads us to the third point, and we all know this, our possessions will never bring us happiness. Our stuff does not answer the deepest questions of our lives. Belonging acceptance, joy, security, love, fulfillment, none of these things can be found and or stored in our barns. These things can only be found in Christ, not in fancy trips, not in new homes, not in a new pair of jeans or shoes or any possessions or any amount of wealth can answer these questions. But we all know this stuff, right? None of this is new material yet. These are all things we've heard, and in fact, like I said, these are actually all things that I have preached on before. So as I read this again, my thought was, what is it that we actually need to hear from the parable of the rich fool? And I think the answer is maybe found in the context that is around this parable. Because as I said before, the parable sets in the middle of a longer private teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples that others are listening in on. The preceding teaching to this parable was Jesus' teaching on the idea of hypocrisy. And he says this, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Luke 12, 1 and 2. This being a familiar teaching, we actually see the same teaching in Matthew. We see the same teaching in Mark as well. Hypocrisy or the idea of saying one thing yet doing another was seen so clearly in the Pharisaical tradition of his time, and it was of great danger, and Jesus spoke out against it multiple times. Jesus uses this idea of leaven as the word picture to show us that just a little bit will affect the whole. He's essentially teaching his disciples that any inconsistency in their lives will, in fact, be uncovered. He goes on to challenge his followers to fear not the things of the world, but fear only the choices that can lead to spiritual separation from God. In verses 6 and 7 of 12, he teaches this, which again is a favorite passage of many. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value Than many sparrows. Jesus' teaching in the first verses before the parable in chapter 12 is really building to this idea about discipleship. It's talking about the very act of what it looks like to follow Jesus and the fact that following Jesus necessitates us looking and behaving differently than the world. Around. And it's at this apex of teaching that Jesus is interrupted with a man's question about inheritance. The question is jarring because it's completely out of context from what Jesus is talking about right before then. It's as if the man is listening enough to say, Jesus, these are nice things that you're talking about, but what I need to know is who is right between my brother and I. What I need to know is how can I consume more things? How can I amass more wealth? Tell me who is right? This question clearly shows where this man's allegiance lies. And instead of halting his teaching, Jesus masterfully uses the rich fool to illustrate that allegiance to wealth is in fact incompatible with discipleship. Jesus' teaching in this parable is really a continuation of how we must look different. Now, I began talking about sports cards because in a similar way to how I became consumed, we have become consumed by our own wealth. Thinking about it, amassing it, securing it, spending it, saving it, worrying about it using it to make more of it than having to figure out more ways to secure it while always making it available for us to use it at any moment. If there was ever a parable that was an indictment on the American Christian church in our current context, I think it would be this parable of the rich fool. You see, if we're honest and actually took a step back to look in on our lives, this is what I think we would really see. We would see that we have been born in a time and a place that has uh, created incredible opportunity for wealth. And as Christians, we have convinced ourselves we really only need to be generous to give 10% of our adjusted gross income to earn on our investment. And once we write that check or click yes on that website, we go back to surfing our own websites for new things convincing ourselves our whatever is old and needs to be replaced. Our wealth and our possessions have seduced us away from Jesus. Our greed has blinded us to the true way of discipleship, and I contend we need to completely reorient our lives. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote that there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind and the conversion of the purse. You see, Dave Ramsey quotes and envelope systems and socially conscious investments and sound budgeting and convincing ourselves that someone should in fact be wealthy to support good causes is not what I think Jesus intended when he spoke about this parable, and it's not what, Jesus in, or it's not what Luther intended when he quoted this. When he said this, that there needs to be an absolute conversion to our purse. The rich fool isn't about money. It's truly about allegiance. After the parable in Luke 12, Jesus comes back to the topic of God's sovereignty, his protection, his indescribable love of his followers, which then leads right into 20 verses regarding a readiness posture we must have for his return. And then he uses some incredibly sobering imagery of the end times to put forth an even more intense call about right Christian conduct and what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. Chapter 12 is about discipleship. It's a teaching on what it looks like to place your allegiance, the allegiance, the entirety of your life behind Jesus. How we understand and handle wealth and possessions is not an unrelated aspect of life that we should approach with Christian intention. It is is an extension of our discipleship. Yesterday I was uh, sitting down and writing this kind of doing some final touches and Grace and my wife sat down and we began to dialogue about this topic. And I kind of Talked to her about, well, this is where I think I'm going and this is what I'm going to say and and, uh, kind of looking for her feedback in this. And she said, well, that's all well and good, but then what do we do? And I said, well, I actually don't really know, (laughs) to be totally honest. She said, well, what about antiquing? That specifically was not a question that I had thought about. I know that's shocking to many. She said, is it wrong to go antiquing? And I said, well, I I don't know. You know, kind of watch your step on this one, right? And then she said, well, what about is it wrong to go on a date? And then she said, well, is it wrong for you to buy more outdoor gear? Just like the dagger to my heart right there, right? (laughs) Now, these are incredibly reasonable questions. Honestly, my answer is I don't fully know. I know that I need work in this area of my life. I know that I earnestly need to seek what it means to be a disciple consistently. I don't think there are specific answers necessarily to these questions, and I actually don't think I could answer all of these questions on a Sunday, Sunday morning service. I actually think that part of me was worried that if I do answer these questions, then we just get off course again and we start checking boxes to make ourselves feel better about the lives that we're living. Behavioral check boxes will not get us to the place that Jesus desires us to be. Now, the truth is we live in a world and a time and a system driven by money and built on money. So then how might we actually look different? I do want to offer a few suggestions. The first is this, focus on Christ, right? It always comes back to this one, focus on Christ. Luke 12, 34, right after the parable, he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. It truly is as simple as this. What do you spend your time doing? Because that's what you value. How do you spend your money? Because that's an indication of what's truly important in your life. So the question is, what do you treasure? And if it's anything but Christ, you will find yourself in trouble. One of my Google Howard S quotes, right there, it will be the third quote down that you read. And I'll just let you do that when you get home. The second one is this. Do not fear. It's easy to paint a picture of the wealthy Christian who flaunts their money with extravagant purchases and then point fingers thinking, man, it would be so good for that person to hear Kevin's unbelievable message in this moment. But I believe those who have created a life of staunch frugality due to their fear are just as guilty of placing their allegiance to their money. Uncompromising habits, stockpiling wealth, lacking generosity is all placing money as an idol, and it is the same deadly sin as the way of the affluent. There is No difference. Fear not is one of the most common commands in the scripture. We have nothing to fear in this area of our life. I promise you. The more that you seek financial security, the more you worry about the bottom line, the more fear will absolutely consume your life. Be willing to make decisions not based on a fear of scarcity, but out of a place of trust in God's sovereignty. Third one, openly seek accountability. My dad instructed me at an early age, the three things you never talk about in public are religion, politics, and money. And although I love my dad and think he is an incredibly wise man and I get what he was trying to communicate in that moment, I could not agree with this more. Part of the reason we are so dysfunctional and hypocritical with our wealth is because we don't talk about it. We have purposely isolated ourselves and shrouded our bank accounts and expenditures in secrecy because we don't want to be found out. I know people who are more willing to invite accountability into their lives about their sexual addiction than they are about their spending habits. That's a terrifying place to be in. So open your life to financial accountability. Find a person. Find a couple. Share your bank statements with them. Show them your monthly credit card statements, and you might be really surprised what you find out about yourself. Frank Honeycutt, which I'm only quoting this because his name is Honeycutt, says this, the spiritual aim of any scriptural teaching about money is to lead a follower of Christ to transparent honesty about what's private, about what's mine, and what's nobody's business. The more we hide this area of our lives, the more we really are just drowning in our own internal dialogue like the rich fool. And when we, really, when we rely on that dialogue, our reality becomes incredibly skewed as to what's right and what's good. The last one. Filter everything. When you go backpacking, and you need filtered water, you don't just filter 90% of the water, right? Everything you drink, you need to filter because if you don't, you can find yourself incredibly sick. God does not ask us to be faithful with 10%. Let me say that again. God does not ask us to be faithful with 10%. Discipleship demands faithfulness and prudence with 100%. This is the filter for everything we do. You were a disciple just as much when you write your tithe check as you are when you click the buy now button on Amazon. Now, does this mean you deliberate a little bit more when you're at the grocery store or when you're thinking about the new release of the favorite shoe that's coming out in a month? Yeah, I think it does. Yes, I think being a disciple of Christ necessitates us to think through these things differently than the world around us. We have all played the game where we say to ourselves, well, I don't spend nearly as much money as he does or she does, or well, I would never take that extravagant of a trip, or my ex is getting pretty old. Proceed with caution when you begin to dialogue with yourself in these ways. Now, I don't believe God desires us to be a frantic and guilt-ridden people. However, I fundamentally believe that we too often exercise our freedom in Christ with our wealth. And I think it's incredibly destructive to the process of discipleship. These are not exhaustive principles. There are more, and I encourage you to find maybe more principles that you can discuss in your groups Additionally, on the screen here, here are a couple of questions. We'll leave them up for a minute. You can take a photo of them if you want to. These might be some good questions to ask in group or with the people that you're discussing this with. But let me conclude with this. Rich fool simply because he tore down barns and built newer ones. He's a fool because he allowed his wealth to keep him from being a disciple of Christ. Jesus uses all of chapter 12, including the parable, to show and call his disciples to something far greater, a new life, to be a different people. Peter, one of the disciples standing there listening to this uh, teaching, says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as a sojourner in exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This is the life that Jesus was teaching about in chapter 12. Six, seven months ago when we laid out this series, we titled this elephant Kingdom versus Cash for a reason. There is a clash, a competing for allegiance that is constantly pulling at us. And because we have been so busy building bigger barns, I believe we have forgotten that we are also disciples. Platt says this about our discipleship. You and I can choose to continue with business as usual in the Christian life and in the church as a whole, enjoying success based on the standards defined by the culture around us. Or we can take an honest look at the Jesus of the Bible and dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed him and really obeyed him. Discipleship is not something we add on top of the life that we are already living. So let us hear this morning's word and be willing to ask the hard questions about our lives, especially how are we disciples when it comes to the wealth that has been entrusted to us. Now, I'll make this last remark. Some of you might hear this message and sound, uh, and and hear that it sounds a little bit like a bait and switch. That Russ tells you we are behind budget, and then shares a dream to raise $35,000 for a youth pastor, which we fully know makes no logistical sense. And then I hold your feet to the fire about money. It's the classic good cop, bad cop situation, right? But I promise you, I absolutely promise you this was not our intention. Purely a matter of timing. And all these things converging on one weekend, which we set this talk to be here six months ago. But maybe, just maybe, some of these things are divinely orchestrated. Guilt should never be a reason for you to give. Either you resonate with new community or you don't. Either you believe our community needs to take the step toward a youth pastor or you don't. We can't make that decision for you. What I can say is if you have been given money and if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, then there is a specific way to handle it. It. There's a specific way to align yourself in discipleship. Give to new community if you resonate with it, if you resonate with what happens in this place, if you're compelled by the mission that we are doing. If you're not, then don't give here. That is okay. Support the idea of a youth pastor if you're compelled by the vision or find something else, but do not, do not sit idly as a consumer of spiritual goods and services convinced that you can live however you want. Let me pray. Father, we, we confess to you that we have tried to find happiness and joy and belonging and security and fulfillment in our wealth. We confess to you that we have not always handled this well in our lives. We confess to you that we have divided allegiance. We ask, Spirit, that you would convict us, not by the words that I said this morning, Lord, but convict us, Spirit, of how you desire us to live. Be with us. Lord, may we take steps forward towards you. May we open this aspect of our lives to those around us. May we actually desire change and growth in this area. Lord, and we pray for this community. Continue to lead us as we make decisions moving forward that we believe honor you, that we believe best Take care of this community and our bigger community of Spokane. And would you meet our needs as you have so faithfully met our needs. We pray these things in Christ's name.
0: Amen.